0: In this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Gunnar Grosh about chaos engineering in Serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number nine. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Gunnar Grosh. Hi, Gunnar. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me. So you are a cloud evangelist and co-founder at Opsio. So why don't you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and maybe what Opsio does?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I have uh, quite a long history within IT. I've been working almost 20 years in IT, uh, ranging everything from development, uh, through operations, uh, management, and so on, and um, about a year and a half ago, we started a new company called Opsio, and we are a cloud consulting firm uh, helping customers to use cloud services in any way possible, and also operations. Great. All right, so
0: I saw you speak at Serverless Days Milan, and you did this awesome presentation on chaos engineering and serverless. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. So maybe we can start with just kind of uh, a quick overview of what exactly chaos engineering
1: is. Yes, definitely. So chaos engineering is a quite new field within um, IT, and well, the background is that we know that sooner or later, almost all complex systems will fail. So it's not a question about if, it's uh, rather a question about when. So uh, we need to build more resilient systems and, and to do that, we uh, need to have experience in failure. So chaos engineering is about creating experiments that are designed to reveal the weakness in a system. So what we actually do is that we inject failure intentionally in a controlled fashion to to be able to gain confidence so that we get confidence in that our systems can deal with these failures. So chaos engineering is not about breaking things. Uh, I think that's really important. We do break things, but that's not the goal. The goal is to build a more resilient system. Right, yeah.
0: And and so um, that's one of the things that I think... uh, there's maybe this misunderstanding of too, is that you're you're doing very controlled experiments, as you said. And this is something where uh, it's not just about maybe fixing problems either in the system. It's also sort of planning on for when something goes down. So it's not just finding bugs or weaknesses. It's also like what happens if uh, DynamoDB for some reason goes down or some backend database? Like what's the, how do you plan for resiliency around that, right? Yeah, that's
1: correct. Uh, Because resiliency isn't only about having systems that don't fail at all. We, we know that failure happens. So we need to have a way of maintaining an acceptable level of uh, operations or service. So when things fail, that the service is, is good enough for, for the end users or the customers. So we do the experiments to be able to find out how, how both the, the system behaves and also how the organization, the operations teams, for example, how they behave when failure occur.
0: One well, about the monitoring systems too, right? I mean, we put monitoring systems in place, and then uh, and then something breaks, and we don't get an alarm, right? So uh, that's one. This is one of the ways that you can test for that as well.
1: Yeah, that's quite common use case for chaos engineering, actually, to be able to do experiments to test your monitoring, make sure that you get the alerts that you need. Uh, no one wants to be the guy that has to wake up early in the morning when something breaks, but you have to rely on that function to be there. So that uh, pager duty or whatever you use uh, actually calls the guy. Now, and you said this is a relatively
0: new field. Again, it, you know, I, when you say new, it's like a couple of years old. Um,
1: and and so how did this get started? Well, uh, it, it actually started back in 2010 at Netflix. So I guess it's around nine years now. Uh, they, they started a tool or created a tool that was called Chaos Monkey. And the tool was created in response from them moving from uh, traditional physical infrastructure into AWS. So they needed a way to make sure that their large distributed system could uh, uh, adapt to failure so that they can handle failure. So they used Chaos Monkey to more or less uh, turn off or shut down EC2 instances and see how the system behaved. Uh, so that was in 2010, and, and um, I guess the first chaos engineer was, was hired at Netflix in 2014, so about five years ago. Um, and in, in 2017, uh, the team uh, at Netflix uh, published a book that's on chaos engineering. Uh, uh, I think it's out on O'Reilly Media which is uh, like the book on chaos engineering today that's used by by most people who, who use uh, chaos engineering so we uh, we can get into some of the
0: more of the details about running the experiments I want to get into all of that but I'm kind of curious because this is something where especially with teams now uh, and maybe as we get into serverless too, you've got developers that are closer to the stack They're you know maybe less ops people or more of this mix so is this uh, like a technical field, is it? Uh, is it the, the devs that do it? Do the ops people do? It? Like, who's sort of responsible for doing this
1: chaos engineering stuff? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I would say that it's a question that's being debated in the field as well. Uh, where does chaos engineering belong? Uh, and, and I think it's it's uh, different in different organizations. Some teams have uh, specific, uh, or some organizations have specific teams that are only working with chaos engineering. Uh, like Netflix, like uh, people at Amazon as well. Uh, but other organizations, they, they use chaos engineering and it's spread out in the organization. So it might be operations that work with chaos engineering, but it also might be a DevOps team or just developers as well. Uh, but to do the experiments, you need to involve more or less the entire entire organizations. So you use people from from many teams. Right, because you're
0: going to run. In some cases, you run this maybe um, earlier on, where you're in testing or dev. You might run some of these experiments, but then you're going to end up most likely, if you really want to test the resiliency of your system, you're going to run this in production somewhere. Um, and that means if something breaks, uh, you know your 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 tech uh, support team or uh, customer service or, or whatever, they might start getting flooded with calls. So it's probably good to
1: Kind of notify everybody, hey, we're we're running an experiment, right? Yeah, exactly. It might yeah. involve people from from all teams within your organization. Uh, I guess if a major customer is affected, someone at sales might get a call as well. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Right, that you don't want to be that support rep or that uh you know you don't want them to you don't want to be the account manager probably uh, <laughs> unless you you figure that out. All right, so let's let's get into actually talking about the experiments themselves. So let's maybe take a step back and and ask the question why why would we run experiments in the first place?
1: Yeah, well, uh, since the purpose is to to find out if the system is resilient to failure, um, we look at if our customers if or if our system has a, a problem are our customers getting the experience they should? Is the system behavior behaving good enough for our customers to get the experience? Uh, or uh, another thing might be that we have downtime, we have issues that are costing us money. Um, so, and as you mentioned, is our monitoring working as it should? Uh, so we have quite a lot of things that uh, might ins- intense us to to actually do the chaos experiments Um, and to do it. Well, it it builds confidence when we do the experiments, we build confidence and we know uh, how everything within the system and the organization behaves in in the face of failure.
0: Right. And we we probably already kind of talked about this a little bit, but this idea of an organization being able to handle an outage right because if you're if all of a sudden something goes down and you're like well we just expected everything to be running um you know and then all of a sudden something goes down and either there's cascading failures or uh all kinds of things like that if the if if you run these experiments and say okay uh, it's like a fire drill what do we do if x fails you know how do we recover from that or, or or what do we you know what kind of resiliency do we build in so that's that's a big part of it as well right
1: yeah, that's correct. Uh, and uh, a lot of organizations today run what's called game days where where you uh, do exactly these types of fire drills where where you uh, inject some sort of failure into either the the system or or the organization and like a, a game you actually do it and see how would you behave, how do you perform uh, within the organization. Uh, and, and And this continues not only until you have resolved the actual issue you you need to to make sure that you know how do um, you report everything how how do you follow up on the failure and how do you solve the issues that you found in within your your system or your organization well yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned
0: this too um, I think in your talk where uh, you know it's not just about what happens when a system goes down like what happens when a system slows down like does that affect How many customers, like how many orders you get per hour, for example, like is that uh, I think you mentioned Amazon um, that when their latency goes up by 100 milliseconds, they lose X amount of dollars per hour or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I know Adrian Hornsby, evangelist at AWS, has a slide in one of his presentations where he shows some numbers on this. And I believe the the example of Amazon is that they have 1% drop in sales for 100 milliseconds extra load time. And for a company Amazon size, that's quite a lot. That's that's a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, another example I know was uh, that um, Google has a number that says that 500 milliseconds of extra load time uh, cost 20% fewer searches on google.com. Which means 20% fewer
0: ads load, which means yep. 20% less money from the ads. Yeah. So I think that's, I, that's just to me is one of the more fascinating things of this as well is that you're it, just this idea of like injecting latency and we can talk about that, but um, you know, all these different things you can do to affect the customer experience and see what effect it literally has on your bottom line. Um, that's just a really cool,
1: uh, it's a really cool thing that I think maybe most companies aren't thinking about right now. No, exactly. And and uh, that's why just business metrics are so important as well. We we tend to focus on technical metrics uh, in our field. Uh, but when it comes to chaos engineering, the business metrics is uh, probably more important. Uh, what CPU load there is or how much uh, memory we're using isn't all that important. Our system should be able to handle that. but But how does the business metrics get affected when we have issues?
0: Right. And that's why you want to run these experiments sort of as close to production or in production, because that's where you're going to see uh, actual effects like that, where, you know, you, you actually see when customers are impacted, what happens? Yeah, Exactly. All right, so if we're going to run some of these experiments,
1: you had a bunch of steps laid out, right? So why don't we start at step one? What's the first thing we do? Well, the first step is that we need to define what we call the steady state. And and steady state is the normal behavior of, of our system over time. So that we the metrics that we have, we need to know what is the steady state of those metrics. And that might be, if it's a business metrics, it, it might be how many searches do we have per hour or per day or per year. Um uh, how many purchases are there on amazon.com uh, but of course we have the technical mes- metrics or the system metrics as well um, how many uh, clicks uh, or how many function Im- invocations are there per hour for example or what is the cpu load so so we find these metrics and we define those so that we know what Uh, We use them then when we run our experiment to be able to to benchmark what happens when we do the actual experiment. All
0: right, so then the next step, so once we know our steady state and essentially, as you said, um, and this again, this is based off of a number of different factors too. So it's also like how much load, like, you know, what's our steady state at 8 a.m. on a Monday versus what's our steady state at you know, 2 p.m. on a Wednesday, things like that. So you should have those metrics kind of laid out. Um, and as you said, those business metrics are extremely important as well. All right, so once we have the steady state, then we move
1: on to step two. Yeah, and the second step is then that we, we form what we call an hypothesis. So we uh, decide upon how will the system, or or we hypothesis around how will the system be handle a specific event. By using what we call what-ifs, we, we try to find, way to form this hypothesis. And what ifs might be, what if DynamoDB isn't responding? What if the load balancer breaks? What if uh, latency increases by X amount? Uh, And by using these what ifs, we're then able to form our hypothesis. And the hypothesis might be that if latency increases by 100, 100 milliseconds, our front end will still behave correctly for our for the customers or end users or if DynamoDB isn't responding our system will have a graceful degradation and we will still be able to to have a service to the end users so that's the hypothesis that we're then going to try to prove or disprove and so is there like a
0: because again, I know it's a relatively new field and maybe there's more about this in the book that Netflix did, but are there like a common list of hypotheses or is it something that you just
1: sort of, it's going to be unique to each, uh, to each system? They are often quite unique, but many of the chaos experiments that that we use, they or, originate in, in uh, the eight fallacies of distributed computing. Uh, you know that uh, that network is reliable, that latency is zero, that uh, bandwidth is infinite, and so on and so on. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So if we uh, base experiments on these, well, we will get uh, a baseline of experiments that we can inject into most organizations or most systems. Uh, but then outside of that, well, it's uh, probably based upon what type of system, what services you're running.
0: Yeah, and so should we? Should we come up with a list of experiments? If we're coming up with hypotheses, um, should we come up with something that's going to test everything, or should we try to be? Are there
1: more specific things we should focus on? Well, uh, we usually start by uh, the critical services, so we we start by tier zero services, perhaps uh, the most critical functionality. Uh, so. We find those systems and perform the experiments there, and then we can move, expand the base on that. Uh, So the systems that will probably affect the most are the most important ones to get started with. Uh, Right.
0: So yeah, so so you would want to start, you would want to start with what happens if the database goes down? What happens if, you know, this service goes down or um, something like that? As opposed to let's start injecting latency to see how that affects. Customer behavior,
1: yeah, most likely. Uh, if you run an e-commerce site, the I suppose the the final steps of the purchase process is quite important. So exactly. you might want
0: to start there. And I would I would think too if um, if you came up with a, a hypothesis and you said, "All right, if the Dynamo DB table goes down, um, everything's going to blow up and the site's not going to work anymore," that before you would run that experiment, you'd probably like, if you identify that you know there's a problem,
1: you probably go and fix that before you run the experiment, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and it's quite common that just while you're trying to form your hypothesis or create your experiment, you, you think of things that you haven't thought about before. And depending on the people in the room, you, you might start talking with people that you normally don't do, and you find things that probably won't work. So then it's better to fix or better. You should fix those issues first. And then start over form a new hypothesis
0: right and then once you kind of work your way through that then i mean there's going to certainly be things in your system that you're not going to know um you know that they're going to have an effect until you actually run the experiment um but like you said yeah i I just think it's, it's one of the things you don't want to just say okay I have a feeling that if we if we take DynamoDB down, then our entire system will crash. Let's try it because you're pretty <laughs> sure it's going to happen. So, uh, all right. So so perfect. So now we've got um, all right. So we have our hypothesis, um, and now we need to plan
1: our experiments. Right. That's correct. So so we have the hypothesis, and based on that, we then create the experiment, um, and and we do that just like um, uh, we create a plan for it in detail. Exactly how to run the the experiment. Who does what. Um, and when we do we do it? Um, but key here is that you should always start with the smallest possible experiment so that you contain the blast radius. Uh, and blast radius containment is, is really important to be able to, uh, first of, of course, test the experiment, but to not create a bigger impact that, than what's needed to be able to see if that part works or not. So Uh, when you
0: say, when you say contain the blast radius, so um, like what would be an example of that? Like just only kind of adjusting or breaking a single function or... How would you
1: uh, define that? The blast radius might be uh, of different sorts, but um, just doing it on a single function is one way of doing it. Um, You're trying to make sure that you don't affect the entire system that way. Uh, But it might also be that you're doing it on a small set of users. So instead of of, uh, injecting the failure or uh, exposing all users to the failure, you can do it on a small test group, for example. Uh, Yeah. So, so that, that, and that, and that actually makes a ton of sense too, because if
0: you're um, like, rather than saying what happens when DynamoDB goes down, you could say what happens when this function can't access DynamoDB. Um, And then that's a much, like you said, much smaller blast radius. All right. So you, you um, you've got the experiment defined, um, you know, you're, you're planned it to contain this blast radius. Uh, What, what is the, how do you test though that the experiment worked or didn't work?
1: Well, yeah, it's uh, important that you have uh, uh, metrics that can measure the effect of the actual experiment. So if you're testing a specific part of the system, you need to know how did the system behave uh, when you injected that type of failure. So once again, it's uh, part of monitoring and having observability into what you're actually doing in the system. And, And when you run these experiments,
0: I can imagine, especially with serverless, it gets a little more difficult right because you can't you can't actually shut down dynamo db right so you have to find different ways to kind of get around that
1: yeah that's true when we're creating uh, experiments for serverless we we Well, we have a higher level abstraction, so uh, the failure modes aren't the one that we're used to in Chaos Engineering. Uh, As I said, it started started out with Chaos Monkey that shut down EC2 instances. Well, we don't have any EC2 instances anymore. There isn't an off button for DynamoDB. So we need to find new ways of injecting this failure. So now we've got, You
0: know, this is a sort of a complex step, but um, now you've got all these things in place. Um, this is probably where you wanna notify the organization, like, hey, we're gonna break something now, or we might break something now.
1: That's really important because uh, just performing experiments uh without notifying anyone might lead to consequences that you don't really want and and having success stories around chaos engineering is really important and and success might be that something breaks Uh, it doesn't have to be that the system is resilient it's a success story even if you find something that breaks Uh, but the organization needs to be ready to handle whatever happens when you inject a failure um, and an important part as well is when you start your experiment or when you're, you're designing your experiment, make sure to have a way of stopping it. <laughs> you need to have that big red button to stop Yeah. It. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
0: because I can imagine that would be. Hey, we might break some stuff. Oh, by the way, we broke it, but it's going to take an hour before we can fix it. No, um, that's probably that's probably not a good thing. Um, it, and it I, might be your only chaos experiment then. <laughs> that might be the only one. Well, but you're right because I mean, you mentioned this idea of building confidence within an organization, and I can certainly see that if I'm, uh, you know, I'm the uh, shipping department or something like that, and you're, uh, you know, we rely on uh, the system being up all the time, and you're going to tell me, oh, by the way. We're going to inject some failure into the system or we're going to we're going to try some experiments. It might take uh, might take down the shipping system. Um, and then all of the your workers that are in the in the uh, factory uh, or in the warehouse uh, might stand around for an hour because no new orders are coming in because we broke something. Um, you know, that that's the kind of thing where, yeah, you know, they might be. Not super excited about something like that happening, um, but if you could do it on a smaller scale, and you can say, well, you know, for the billing department, it's okay if we didn't bill people for an hour because we were testing some things. Um, but what we found was, if this happens, we can fix this, uh, and that basically means, or we built in the resiliency for it, or some sort of backup plan for it, um, and now, and and now we can reduce that type of outage, if that happens, we reduce the downtime or we reduce the failures or whatever, um, you know, that reduces down to 15 minutes, as opposed to maybe a three hour fix or something like that. Um, and so if you're the shipping department, you say, Okay, I see this as a benefit, I take that hour, let them test it. Um, and then I know that if there is some critical failure in the future, all of my people aren't standing around in the warehouse for a day, because we were able to figure out what the problem was before it happened.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely correct.
0: All right, cool. So now speaking of sort of like um, the measurement side of
1: things, so step four is we measure it and we learn something, right? So now we've run our experiment. Uh, we've performed uh, the injection of failure that we wanted to do. So now we need to use the metrics that we have in place to, to prove or disprove the hypothesis. Uh, and depending on what type of hypothesis we have, this might be a technical or a system metric, or it might be, Uh, some other business metrics, so that we see, uh, did uh, the front-end break when we shut down DynamoDB, for example. So, we we need to see then, is the system resilient to the injected failure? Uh, and, And remember what I said early on, that resiliency isn't that nothing ever breaks. It's about the system being able to to give good enough service uh, to to the end users or the users right. of
0: the system. Right, and that's and that's actually a really good point too, because that's a that's another thing too. Is uh, with distributed systems, things break all the time, right? All, the messages don't get delivered, or you can't access something. Um, and Netflix does this very cool graceful degradation, right, where they just don't show. Recommended movies um, if uh, or whatever, whatever their thing is, if that section isn't working. Right. So this is that don't show an error message if you don't have to. Um, If you can get away with kind of cutting out a piece of it, you know, then 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 have a graceful way of uh, of letting your system fail.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, just having that graceful degradation, I think the Netflix example is really good there. Having uh, UIs that don't block users, you don't get an error message, it just keeps going, but you don't see the part that's not working.
0: Yeah, and then with serverless too, it's one of those things where if for some reason your database was down um, and you couldn't process payments or something right away, uh, you can certainly buffer them in an SQS queue or in Kinesis or something like that. So you could still be taking orders even if you can't necessarily bill um, or you can't charge somebody's credit card. But what's better, um, you know, being able to keep taking orders with maybe a few people who enter incorrect credit card information that you have to notify them later to say, hey, um, this credit card didn't work and maybe you get them to give you a new one or to basically say to everybody, sorry, you can't order anything right now.
1: Yeah, that's that's a part of of what you need to do Then, When you have run your experiment, you, you need to learn from uh, the outcome and find ways of doing it in a better way, usually. And that might be a question you have to ask. Should we shut down the entire part? Or should we leave uh, good enough service for some users? Right. And that's and that's probably
0: where um, communicating with the rest of the company and sharing, you know, all of that success or, I guess, (laughs) non-success, depending on what it is, with the rest of the company and saying like, okay, if this broke in your system, what would you want to do? Like, how would you want to handle a failure in your system? I think that's a good discussion to have with your entire organization
1: yeah um you involve the product owners or uh, how your organization looks and let uh let it be a business decision in the end perhaps
0: so now we've got these small experiments running right because we're still containing this blast radius and uh and trying to be smart about not killing our entire system um the next step though is to turn it up to 11 and see what
1: happens, right? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Uh, so if, if we've done the experiment on, on a small set of users, uh, the next step, if it was a success, we, we didn't have any failures, uh, we are then able to, to uh, expand on the system and, and scale it up and perhaps have a bigger set of users or um, more countries or more functions. However, you contain the experiment early on. Now you're able to scale it up and with that increased scope, uh, you usually see some new effects. Uh, injecting latency into one single function might not reveal any issues, but if you inject into multiple functions at once, uh, you might get an effect that you didn't see with a small scope test.
0: Right. Yeah. And then because again, you have those uh, cascading failures and 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 things like that as well. So one function goes down or one function can't connect. That's one thing. But if a whole series of them can't or multiple services that maybe share some uh, common infrastructure or something, if that goes down. Um, so that's really interesting. And, and this is also to where I think the the uh, sort of the economic tests um, that uh, injecting latency, what happens if we slow down? Um, like on 5% of your users, you may see something there, but um, that's if you want to get a larger sample size, that would certainly be where you would want to run uh, the larger test around that.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. The, the business metrics might not, you might not see the effect in the business metrics until you scale uh, the experiment up a bit. All right. Awesome. All right. So why don't we now kind of shift this a little bit more
0: towards serverless uh, and just kind of talk about what the challenges are. I mean, we mentioned that, you know, you can't turn off DynamoDB, um, but maybe we can just talk about like, what are the, what are the common things in serverless we might test for? Like, what are those common weaknesses that you typically see in a serverless application?
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, Well, Things we usually see, uh, and this isn't something that we see only when doing chaos engineering. It's it's something that we might see in uh, architectures every now and then. uh, It might be that we're missing error handling. So uh, when we have functions uh, receiving errors from downstream services, for example, uh, we aren't handling them in a correct fashion. These are things that we, we might find when doing uh, chaos engineering experiments in serverless. Um, timeout values, that's quite common, that we don't have the proper uh, timeouts on our services, so that uh, perhaps it's not always an issue, but when we get latency, when we inject latency, we might see that intermediate services uh, might be... Uh, might have failures when we have the incorrect timeout values. So services at the edge might be affected because there is timeout issues further down. Um, fallback, missing fallback rather, that's something that we see every now and then, that a downstream service of some sort, uh, DynamoDB for example, isn't available. So then we don't have a, a proper fallback for that because we're relying on DynamoDB to be there all the time. Uh, because that's that's how cloud works, right? Well, but that's because every engineer pretty
0: much designs for the happy path, and yeah. you just assume you just assume everything will work.
1: Uh, like you said, those those eight fallacies of distributed computing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that makes that makes a ton of sense. And, and then we have the bigger one uh, with the missing regional failover. We, quite often, uh, we design systems uh, that aren't distributed over more than one region so we have them in one single region and and regions they rarely fail but it might happen and it doesn't have to be that an entire region goes out as well it might be that um, network issues uh, for closer to the user might prevent them from reaching a specific region as well so it doesn't always uh, you don't always uh, have enough regional spread if you only use cloudfront for example you might need to spread out your lambda functions as well over multiple regions you know and that's it's something too where
0: this is i see this all the time there's just people build a serverless application or parts of their application are serverless and they just assume us east one will always be there um and uh you know i mean there are hurricanes there are um, there are floods there are earthquakes there are all kinds of things that could affect um, and not just not just one of the not just one of the availability zones, because obviously the availability zones within each region region are actually spread out um, quite a bit. But you could have something that took out an entire region and then kind of what happens, you know, what happens there. Um, but also the other piece of it, too, is, you know, if that if that goes down, how are users affected? Um, if, even if you do have a, another region, like what if we have to now route all U.S. traffic to the EU? Right. Or how does the EU behave Um, or what's the latency like when they're accessing services in U S East one, because obviously you have that speed of light problem, right? You can only get back and forth so fast. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's interesting too. And also just if one region goes down, how do you replicate the data? I mean, there's just, there's a lot in that if you're building a really large distributed application. Yes. So anything else, any other sort of common
1: things that we see? One common thing that I see when, when we're performing these types of experiments is that, like we said before, we don't have graceful degradation. So that the systems, they show error messages to the end users or they uh, parts just don't work but are still there. So we don't have UIs that are non-blocking. Um, and that's a perfect use case for chaos engineering to be able to find those uh, and uh, then fix them
0: well and actually that's a I think that's a good point point. one of the timeout things on the UI side um, if we just set our API gateways to you know timeout after 30 seconds um, then the problem is is that which is the maximum that they they can tower 29 and a half or whatever it is um, that when that times out if our front end is waiting for 30 seconds for that that uh, API to respond, that's not gonna be a great uh, you know, a great experience for the user on the UI side. So shortening those timeouts so that it fails faster um, would be helpful because then you can respond, You know, if you expect it to respond in two seconds or less, which you should, I mean, it should be a couple hundred milliseconds, but if you expect it to respond that quickly and it doesn't, then you should probably degrade at that point, right?
1: Yes, correct. Um, I know serverless hero, Yang Kui, he he wrote an article about exactly this and how to use chaos engineering to to be able to find these or fine tune the timeout values. Uh, so I think that's an excellent use case. Awesome. All right. So let's talk about
0: uh, serverless chaos engineering. So how uh, how do we actually do these experiments?
1: Well, or uh, what are what
0: are these experiments? Is probably a better question.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, one thing that we have talked about already is latency injection, uh, and I think that's probably the easiest one to get started with. Jan um, Kui, once again, he, he, he used latency injection to be able to, to properly uh, configure the timeout values for functions and and uh, downstream services. Uh, so he, he created an article around this and with examples of how to do it. Um, Adrian Hornsby then from AWS has created a Lambda layer for this as well, so you're able to to add a Lambda layer to your functions and then inject the latency and see how the function and the system overall behaves. Then, so latency injection is a quite easy one to get started with. Uh, then we have status code injection or error code injection. So uh, instead of having the, the proper 200 uh, status code as a response from, from your API gateway, you might get a 404 or a 500 error or something like that. Uh, so you can inject those and see how does my system behave when there is an error message. Um, because that's not something that you you might normally get. Uh, but by injecting them, you're able to test the system behavior that way.
0: And you could do you could do like concurrency. You could like manipulate the concurrency,
1: probably. Yes. Um, yeah, definitely. And um, to be able to test that properly, then you you need to be on a quite large scale usually uh, to see exactly how it works. But you're also able to to uh, configure DynamoDB for for the read and writes. And see right, how yeah, your you Yeah. See how your capacity. system behaves.
0: Yep. Okay. Exactly.
1: Uh, since, since we don't have the control of the, of the, uh, the underlying infrastructure, we, we need to well we, we need to make stuff up to be able to do these experiments in another fashion than, than perhaps traditionally with chaos engineering. Uh, but that's the fun part as well. since most of the services are API driven, uh, it's quite easy to do changes back, back and forth. The, the stop button is a configuration change in, in many. Many uh, cases, so you can just use the CLI to do a change back and forth when you're doing your experiment.
0: Right, and then what about like um, what about configuration errors? Like if we changed IAM policies, for example, are there other things you could run around that.
1: Yeah, uh, by by doing the configuration configuration changes or or permission permission changes, you might replicate. That some service isn't available or isn't responding in the correct fashion, but but you might also create uh, a configuration error uh, in a way that that might happen every now and then because with the way that serverless works, we we have so many ways of configuring configuring everything. You have config- configuration on each and every f- uh, function, so uh, that is something that that happens every now and then. It might be on deployment that some configuration change uh, happens, or something is is missing, and uh, so we're able to do that uh, in a controlled fashion by using chaos experiments. Uh, so how would
0: how would we could we run a uh, a region failure test with Serverless? Like how would
1: we how would we do that? Yeah, that's um, it's a bit harder to to do it in in. Uh, in a controlled fashion but uh, we can do it um, by configuration changes by doing permission changes Uh, so we're able to lock more or less lock ourselves out of a specific region Uh, but it's it's hard to get the exact same effect as if the actual region is down um, because you're probably getting uh, errors uh, that different from the way it would behave if the entire region is down. I wonder if you could do that
0: with um, if you could do that with with Route 53. Uh, you know, what I mean, because you can do like some of the uh, you can do the health checks and things like that. I wonder if you could inject a failure there and then have it route traffic um, that way. Yep.
1: Well, I- I- if you have those health checks, uh, or you have. Uh, um, that type of routing in place in Route 53, you you might do it that way. That's right, uh, to to more or less inject failure into the health checks. Yeah. All
0: right. So so maybe then let's talk about um, how we actually then run the tests. We talked about some of them, but like, is there there's tooling or, or there's some tooling? You mentioned uh, Adrian Hornsby has his Lambda layer, um, but is there, are there other other tools that we
1: could use if we wanted to start start doing this? Yes, uh, there are. Um, Looking at um, chaos engineering as a whole, there is one of the bigger options today is is a tool called Gremlin. uh, And they have a SaaS offering for chaos experiments. Uh, And one part of that system is an application uh, fault injection. Uh, And that way you can inject failure into Lambda functions using Gremlin. Uh, So that's one option. Uh, Another option is the open-source Chaos Toolkit, uh, which has drivers for for the main cloud providers, and you're then able to inject failure into um, serverless uh, services as well. Uh, And then, uh, which I think is a fun one, is uh, Tundra, the the observability tool. They Mm -hmm. have added uh, an option to inject failure into and the serverless applications that you're observing through their tool, uh, so then you're you're getting both the observability of the the chaos and you're doing the chaos through the same tool. And
0: and so with the open source one, is that something though that you can build? Like you can build your
1: own experiments, or is yeah. it there's like plugins or something? Exactly. It's it's built around, uh, uh, I think they call it extensions or plugins and uh, that you're able to build yourself. There are a bunch of them out there, uh, but you can easily build your own as well uh, and extend on that. Um, so I, I would say that the most common way of getting started with it in the serverless space is to more or less build your own. Since you're able to, to do, do many of the things through CLI uh, or the API, uh, you can easily do simple scripts that uh, that can perform the chaos uh, and have an easy way of stopping them as well.
0: But it sounds like if you're if you're building your own stuff, and even if you're using any of these other ones, uh, and maybe not so much um, with with like Thunder, for example, but you do have to kind of build these tests into your code, right? Like you have to kind of write your code to say, all right, i can I can fail this by flipping a switch somewhere, but but you actually would have to modify your underlying code. It's not just something that maybe you could um, just wrap, or is it something you could just wrap? Well,
1: if we look at uh, the Lambda layer that Adrian has built, uh, that is actually a, a wrapper that you're wrapping around your functions. So you, you still need to have it in your code, uh, but. If you have it disabled, uh, it, it should be fine to be there all the time, and then you're just enabling it when you're doing your experiments, right? Because uh, you but, probably don't you don't want to change your code if you're
0: running an experiment versus not running an experiment. That kind of defeats the purpose,
1: exactly, uh, because you want the the when you're running your experiments, you want it to be as when in production. Uh, and if you have to do uh, deployments every time, uh, it, it as you said, it defeats the purpose. All right. So let's say you're a company
0: and you're super interested in doing this and, and obviously because it sounds ridiculously fun to, uh, to to go in and maybe break things, but not break things. Uh, but so what would you like? How would you uh, uh, flip these on and off? Like, would you do that with environment variables or how, how would you how would you start and stop these these tests?
1: I would say that it depends on what tooling you're using. Uh, if you're using like Gremlin or Chaos Toolkit, they have their on and off switch in, in the systems. Um, if you And Thunder as well. Uh, but if you're using, for example, the, the Lambda layer from Adrian, then you're doing it through a parameter store. So you're having a, a variable there where, or a parameter where you're able to set it enabled or disabled in a quite easy way than just by updating using the AWS CLI. Uh, so uh, that way, or if you're building your own, you might do it through to environment variables on the actual function as well. Awesome. Okay. All
0: right. So just, I guess, last question here is chaos engineering. I mean, obviously to me, it sounds like a no brainer. Um, do you just have any, uh, any advice for uh, people
1: thinking about doing chaos engineering well what i would say is that of course they should do it Uh, i I think it's it's beneficial for for all organizations to do it even if you don't have a a large global scale distributed system you you can still do chaos engineering Uh, but an easy way to get started is by uh, looking at the the references that are out there there chaos engineering is a hot topic today and there are tons of of uh, talks around chaos engineering all the time at different conferences so look at them on youtube uh, read up on it uh, and uh, just make sure to 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 know uh, that you start small and you do your small experiments first and then you're able to scale up
0: awesome all right well thank you gunner so much for being here uh if the listeners want to find out more about you uh how do they do that well i guess the
1: easiest way is to to look me up on twitter at uh, gunner uh, which is hard to spell but uh, <laughs> i think uh, you'll find me
0: all right i will put that in the show notes and i'll also uh those other tools that you mentioned and stuff i'll get those in there as well all right thanks again man thanks for having me And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Gunnar Grosh for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash nine. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe to the podcast using your favorite app like iTunes and Stitcher. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at None.io. Thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.